You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Don't you just love it? Love what? Tiffany's. Isn't it wonderful? Do you see what I mean? How nothing bad could have happened to you in a place like this? It isn't that I give a hoot about jewelry except diamonds, of course. Tiffany is the most storied jeweler in the country. The name alone evokes images of Audrey Hepburn in a black evening gown looking into the window of its famed Fifth Avenue store in Breakfast at Tiffany's. The iconic robin egg blue box with the white ribbon and flawless diamond engagement rings. LVMH, the luxury conglomerate, thought Tiffany would be the jewel in its crown of iconic brands like Louis Vuitton, Givenchy, and Christian Dior, and made a deal to buy the jeweler for $16 billion, the largest takeover ever in the luxury goods sector. But then the luster wore off the deal for LVMH as the coronavirus pandemic devastated retailers. Still, LVMH surprised investors last week when it said the French government had essentially demanded the deal be postponed because of a dispute over U.S. tariff threats. Tiffany responded by filing suit in Delaware Chancery Court to enforce the agreement. Joining me is Andrew Rossman, a partner at Quinn Emanuel. Andy, we've seen other deals collapse during the pandemic. What's unique about this is that LVMH says it received a letter from the French foreign minister asking it to delay the deal for reasons related to a trade dispute. What impact will that letter have on the legal case? Well, the letter is the $64,000 question in the case at the moment, which is what is the government asking LVMH to do? And what does that implicate in terms of the party's rights under the agreement? It raises the question of, is this a binding government order that has to be followed? Or is this simply kind of a polite request? So I haven't seen the letter. I'm not sure that the letter is is available at this point. And I think it very much turns on what government agency is asking LVMH to do what and then to filter that through the rights and obligations of the agreement. Well, Tiffany apparently said that it saw the letter briefly and wasn't allowed to take a picture of it. And they compared it to, you know, how you see the Mona Lisa for a few minutes and then they shoo you along. But that letter will have to be revealed if the lawsuit continues. I would think that a judge is going to eventually want to see that letter if the letter becomes a feature in the lawsuit. This case has gotten ugly fast. Tiffany has accused LVMH of unclean hands. LVMH says Tiffany has been poorly run during the pandemic. But is performance during the pandemic something that the court is going to consider? Well, it is an important question there, June, about what Tiffany's operations have been and what their financial results have been. Because typical merger agreements, and I'm sure that there's a similar provision here in this one, they do provide for outs, if you will, for the parties if there has either been a deviation from the ordinary course operations of the business or if the company's performance has suffered so much that's considered to be a material adverse effect. And that very much depends on, on how the business is run and what the results are. So material adverse effect, in this instance, is COVID considered a material adverse effect? Well, I think the question is not so much COVID or no COVID, but what is the impact on the company? So 
these are complex provisions and you've got to look at them carefully in their own language. But the starting point is going to be, has the company's performance suffered in a significant way? And then you have to look at the language of that provision to see whether or not the pandemic is specifically provided for or not specifically provided for, if there's some other general broad catch-all, what's called carve-out, that applies to COVID. And there's all kinds of debate going on in these cases right now, depending on the specifics of the language. So I don't think courts are approaching it as well, you know, does COVID terminate all contracts? I think they're dialing in in a much more precise way to think about what's the impact on this particular company and did the parties bargain for getting out of the contract in the event of a pandemic? And then often, how does this company's performance compare to others in the industry? So if the industry is doing badly as retailers and especially luxury goods retailers are during the pandemic, will the court take that into account? It all depends on, June, how the parties wrote the contract, right? So courts like to, particularly in Delaware, they like to give parties the freedom to have whatever bargain they want to have about the risks of doing a deal. So... They can put specific language in that says, you know, even if there's a pandemic, the deal has to close. Or they could put specific language in that says in the event of a pandemic, the deal doesn't have to close. Now, the way corporate lawyers typically draft these things is in a much more general, much more obtuse way. So that's why litigators and judges have to pour through the particular language, look at the company's specific performance, and then make judgments. And you're going to hear sophisticated arguments on both sides. Prior to COVID, was pandemic language found generally in contracts or merger agreements? That's a great question, June. What we have seen is there are examples of contracts that specifically have pandemic language and that there are examples of contracts that don't have pandemic language. And you've got to look at the whole contract, and sometimes you've got to consider the negotiating history of how the parties got there. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. These aren't you know, identical boilerplate provisions, but we have seen examples of both. There's going to be a hearing on September 21st. Tiffany wants to fast-track the lawsuit. What would it have to show in order to get the court to fast-track it? Well, what you essentially have to show is that there is some external reason why the court should set aside its other business and put this case to the front of the line. So what is the emergency uh, to this deal that requires that? And I expect that what Tiffany is going to argue here is that it's facing a termination date in late November um, and that you know it will want to get heard in time to get a ruling in advance of that termination date. Sometimes you know it relates to the availability of outside financing or not, and courts want to act quickly before that expires. Here, if it's just a question of the termination date of the agreement, then it really is up to the parties uh, if they want to extend that or they want to stick to that date. So you know that's going to be what the court's wrestling with. And you've got a judge here who's uh, got two other cases in the COVID era about you know whether or not uh, 
transactions uh, can be terminated. So, you know, a lot of experience there in terms of making that decision. Do you know how he ruled in those cases? One was a small case involving a yoga studio. The other one, the larger cases, the uh, Amex travel case, uh, which which my firm, Quinn Emanuel, is actually involved in, so I'll, I'll tread lightly. But the facts uh, there, just simply on the record, is the motion uh, to expedite was denied. Um, there have been other judges that have granted motions uh, to expedite uh, in, in this era. Vice Chancellor uh, Laster did it in the Murray case, which we were also involved in, and that uh, resulted in a trial a couple weeks ago. There are lots of other deals that have collapsed recently. Is there any conclusion you've drawn from those cases? I would say a couple conclusions. One is the, the Delaware courts will react with great dispatch when they need to. Um, so it, it's been impressive uh, how they've responded to the commercial needs of the parties. And two, they're very fact-dependent. Every case, you know, the court is going to dig in to understand how the business was impacted by the pandemic or other factors, what the specifics of, of the agreements are. Um, and, you know, the parties are, are going to have to expect to go to court and tell their stories in a, in a very persuasive way. Can you compare this to the 2008 financial crisis and the deals that collapsed during that? Yeah, it's quite different. The 2008 financial crisis was a bank-centered crisis. It was about, you know, a lot, a lot of it was um, started around the unavailability of credit. Um, so companies were facing liquidity issues and not fundamental questions about value. And it was, it was across the board here. There is a lot of specific industries, um, you know, luxury retail is one of them. Um, you know, certainly travel, hospitality uh, is another that have really been uh, hit in a, in a severe way, while other industries, you know, tech, for example, uh, have not uh, as a result of this, of this pandemic. So, you know, it's, um, you know, it's quite different in, in the differential impact on the companies, and in some ways, the severity, uh, is, this is something that affects every, every single person that you know, that I know, has been affected by this pandemic, um, whereas, you know, 2008 uh, was, you know, was really more of a Wall Street event, you know, followed by a recession. After all this enmity and legal name-calling, is a deal still possible? Absolutely. One of the things that we observed in 2008 is, MAEs, for example, were declared and cases weren't litigated, but the deals were recut. So you have price negotiations. I've been involved in two deals, one very public, involving Forescout, where my client Advent was a couple days away from trial, and they reached a settlement that resulted in a very substantial reduction in the deal price. So people like to say there's always a buyer at some price. So there could be a resolution of this or any other deal case, you know, based on recut terms. Is there still a bad connotation to reneging on a deal or has COVID sort of erased that idea? I've had this conversation a lot and I think this is a very different era. I really don't believe that there is a reputational hit, if you will, from people exercising their contract rights in light of this pandemic. That's what they're there for. Thanks, Andy.
That's Andrew Rossman of Quinn Emanuel. There's no doubt that Citigroup made a mistake, a $900 million mistake. But unfortunately for the bank, the courts don't follow the schoolyard rule of finders keepers. Citigroup is the administrator on a loan to Revlon and paid out more than $900 million of its own money to a group of lenders who were expecting an interest payment on behalf of Revlon. The bank says an employee error caused it to mistakenly pay out a sum roughly 100 times larger than the interest payment the creditors were expecting. One of the lenders has given the money back, but the others, including Brigade Capital Management, HPS Investment Partners, and Symphony Asset Management, have not, saying the money should be regarded as payment for Revlon's debt. The bank has filed lawsuits against 11 creditors to recover the money. My guest is Annette Allen Beck, a professor at Case Western Reserve School of Law. As a general rule, people who mistakenly receive things they're not entitled to have to give them back. Why isn't that true here? Well, the issue here is more complicated than that. Because traditionally with unjust enrichment, what happens is that one person is enriched at the expense of another. But here, the issue is there's already a debt. They have an agreement that they entered into. So it, it makes it more complicated than the traditional unjust enrichment case because we do have a situation where we have a debtor and a creditor and they gave money to Revlon as a loan and they were supposed to get paid. The question is when. Citibank sent out the money by mistake and you were not supposed to get the principal right now. We are only supposed to get the interest and that's why there's unjust enrichment. What you're trying to do is you're trying to get paid over the other creditors. There's other creditors here, right? There's a line of creditors. So all the creditors are trying to get paid. Why would you get paid before everybody else? What are some of the things the trial judge will be considering? So here I think the judge will have to use discretion and decide whether he's going to compel the other parties to return the money or not. And that depends on the financial state of the company. Is there a bankruptcy proceeding? Is there a reorganization? What's happening? And what was the arrangement with Citibank? What was Citibank supposed to do? What was Citibank's responsibility here? What about the issue of whether the lenders knew the payment was a mistake? There seems to be some focus on that. Oh, definitely. One of the things is that, for example, let's say somebody accidentally transferred money to your bank account. I wanted to transfer money to my sister, and by accident, I transferred money to your bank account. Okay, all of a sudden, you have another $10,000. So the question is, did you know that that money was a mistake? And if you didn't and you already spent that money, what's my recourse against you of giving that money back? So here, that's why the judge ordered the parties that received the money not to use the money so that they don't say, oh, well, we were supposed to get paid. We did, got paid fully, and we didn't know it was a mistake, and we spent the money. So here, clearly, they know that this was a mistake, that they were not supposed to get such a large amount, right? But again, in situations like this, the judges have discretion. They're going to look at the case law, and they're going to decide. The creditors are asking the judge to allow them to present testimony from an expert in the corporate loan market. They said the expert would opine on how lenders in the market and their managers would respond to the receipt of wires such as those at issue in the case. What are they trying to do here? They're trying to show that 
for them to receive something like that might be customary under under other circumstances to show that they are not acting in bad faith, that they shouldn't be perceived that way by wanting to keep the money because the money is owed to them. Because what the judge is going to use is the reasonable person objective. So that other institutions, in their shoes, other reasonable people also assume that they're being paid for what they're owed and what would they do in situations like this. And that's very important. How much advantage does it give the lenders that they have the money in hand? The fact that the creditors are now in possession of the money, that puts them in a powerful position because they can negotiate. They can say, no, wait a minute, we're holding it, we're not giving it back, or how much are we willing to give back, if at all. So the other parties have to basically beg them for it. Citibank, Revlon, they're trying to mitigate their mistakes. Now, even in situations where it wasn't a case where money was owed, in situations where there was just a purely clerical mistake, for example, all the parties knew that an assistant or a secretary by accident subtracted two zeros from a sum, those cases can get litigated for years in court. And just the litigation cost should be an incentive for the parties to settle. Because litigation is expensive. The parties who hold the money know that. So again, that's in their favor. Because they know that if this case gets litigated, the banks, they could be spending millions of dollars in litigation costs. So they're going to want to reach an agreement as soon as possible, so again, to mitigate their exposure, to mitigate their expenses, and to have closure on this issue. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Annette Allenbeck of Case Western Reserve Law School. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> 